Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. A few years ago, I heard a story. And for the last several months during the pandemic, it started to tug at me to raise questions I couldn't really answer. So I called up the scientist who I heard it from and first of all, just asked him to tell it again. And it's going to seem initially like a story about post-World War II Europe. But actually, it's a story about your health and a loophole in how we tend to think about health. Yeah, so this is the, the, the Karelian border between Finland and Russia. And after the war, the border moved. And so you had more or less the same people on two sides of the border, your uh, Finns, who had then had different fates. That's Rob Dunn. He's a professor of applied ecology at North Carolina State University. And on the Russian side, they largely lived lives like they had been living. They lived lives in, embedded in nature, not with a sense of hyper-cleanliness and often with houses that were relatively open to the environment in one way or another. On the Finnish side, Western development took hold and people built houses that were very sealed off from nature and began to live lives that were much less connected to nature. What happened then to the people on either side of the border turned into a lesson for scientists, a warning to public health experts, and something that has felt surprisingly relevant over the last year. And so it's, it's a kind of experiment, and what are the consequences of all of those changes? And the, the simple result is, on, on the Russian side, all of these inflammatory disorders that we're now seeing around the world are extraordinarily rare. They're arguably as rare as they were in 1950. And on the Finnish side, all of those inflammatory disorders became much, much more common through time. Dunn wrote about this accident of history, which turned into a biological experiment, in his book Never Home Alone. It argued that losing the tiny, often invisible critters all around us, and by the way, these things are everywhere. They are all over you and all over everything around you. Well, trying to clean them up, it can be catastrophic. In its simplest terms, our bodies evolved in the context of being exposed to many, many different species. And, and some of those affected us by actually latching onto our body and they become sort of this quilt of life on our skin or they're part of our guts. And, and, and others of those species just help our immune systems make sense of the world. And so for millions of years, j just going about in our daily lives, we were exposed to these species. We acquired them. And relatively recently, we essentially moved indoors. Our quest to wage war on microorganisms is fairly new. In the 1500s, the Queen of England, Elizabeth I, supposedly proclaimed that she bathed once a month, whether she needed it or not. So back to Finland post-World War II. When folks started to go after these tiny critters by emphasizing cleanliness... Young people in the wealthy, clean, indoor-focused world on the Finnish side of the border, they became pioneers in a new biological reality. And so careful experiments have been dubbed subsequently to show that if you restore some of these things that were lost in this transition, you can actually reduce the risk of allergy and asthma in kids on the Finnish side of the border. And so kids today who grew up on the Finnish side of the border but have more diversity of plants in their backyard, have different microbes on their skin, and are at a dramatically reduced risk of allergy and asthma. Kids who are exposed to particular microbes that we're, we think are important can see that same effect. And so th th this border is kind of a microcosm of what's happened all around the world. 
That was the story that kept occurring to me in recent months. The story of what happens when you go from a world that's fairly dirty to a world that is really, really clean. And that transition, which, which is, as you might imagine, complicated, is associated with all sorts of autoimmune disorders, which relate to our immune systems not getting the right exposures or signals, and so overreacting to the body itself. And so Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel, MS even, uh, allergies, asthma, it's a sort of nasty portfolio of things you don't want that all seem to relate to this transition. Enter coronavirus and a level of emphasis on cleanliness that I've never seen before. Beginning, of course, with those shelves last March that were stripped of disinfecting wipes and hand sanitizer, which is why I contacted ecologist Rob Dunnigan and asked him what he saw happening. I mean, at that point, I just finished doing tons of interviews about my book, which is about all the things that are in your house that could be good and how we should value life in houses. And so here I am, I've talked to everybody about, look, these species are good, take care of them, let open your windows. And then I turn and I see my neighbors all going to active war against these species. And so I guess my first reaction was, ooh, there's, this seems like more of this story that's been unfolding, but this incredibly heightened version. But at that point, we didn't totally know which public health measures were gonna be most effective against the virus. And so there was almost a way in which maybe it was reasonable. We know it's dangerous. We know it's coming. The models basically predict what's happened. And so we don't quite know which of these things. But then as time went on, it became more and more clear that this is a virus that's mostly transmitted through the air. And the great power of public health is using simple measures that control the ways in which things spread. And so hand washing works because... It kills off what most recently arrived on your hands, but leaves your good microbes intact. And, and so in the same way, I, what one hoped to see as we started to understand how the virus was transmitted was a focus really just on how do we prevent that airborne uh, spread, because that was really the thing. But the shelves stayed empty. People kept bleaching. All the things that we, we did initially because we were just worried, we've continued to do. And, and they've taken on a new sort of feeling too, I think. So, you know, as you as you say, like back in July, even the Lancet, uh, the medical journal, the Lancet was starting to question the efficacy of all this cleaning in terms of like stopping the spread of covid. Since then, we have seen the CDC. We've seen the journal Nature say, yeah, this does not appear to be how it spreads on surfaces. You know, wiping down surfaces does not appear to be particularly helpful. But it seems incontrovertible that over the last year or so, a lot of homes, a lot of whole countries have just gotten a lot cleaner. That has happened. What do you think of it? Yeah, so I always think of those the, the advertising that says kills 99% of germs. Right. And, and to me, you know, in light of Darwin's ideas about natural selection, that, that's always the worst proportion to kill. Because what it means is what we're doing as we go through our houses and try to kill everything is that we're killing everything that can be killed by what we're spreading. And we're also then leaving that 1%. And, and so we've created this environment where we're, we imagine that we're cleaning. Cleaning is an interesting word in and of itself. What does cleaning mean? 
but, but really what we're doing is we're tipping the balance. So we're disfavoring some species and we're favoring others. And we're disfavoring all these species we need for our bodies to operate normally. Skin microbes and beneficial leaf and soil microbes, they're gone. But what are we leaving behind? You know, we're leaving chlorine tolerant microbes. If you're spraying triclosan, you're leaving antimicrobial resistant microbes. And so I think we imagine we're making our houses sterile. And yeah. that's like the most unambiguous thing we know is not true. No one is making their houses sterile. They're just changing which species are favored. See, I don't think anybody thinks that. I think people think I will wipe it down with this, you know, special cloth that has, you know, is, has all this, um, th these chemicals in it, and it will be clean and empty of things. Yeah, it, not not true. For <laughs> I can unequivocally say not true. Okay. Uh, you know, the the minute you, the second you've finished wiping something down with bleach. The bleach dries, its effects on microbes go away, and then the microbes fall out of your air onto that surface in that same instant. Mm -hmm. And so really you're, you're either having a very short-term effect, or if you're really going at it and spraying bleach into the air, you're just killing off these species that are probably okay for you and leaving some behind. I'll back up one. So I had a student, Megan Temis, who studied the species that live in chimpanzee nests. And so chimps build these very adorable nests. They sleep in for a night. And when Megan studied those nests, those had soil microbes in them and they had leaf microbes in them. Basically no evidence of the chimpanzees whatsoever. And, and, and so those are the kinds of microbes that are really pretty good for us. That's what we need. If you go into, say, a nursery and look at which microbes are there, Basically, all the environmental microbes are, are gone in many cases. And you're left just with weird household microbes that you don't see other places. Wait, wait. Are we talking a plant nursery or a kid nursery? Kid nursery. Okay. Kid nursery. <laughs> all right. Got it. Uh, and, and so in a, in a way, many things about a chimpanzee lifestyle are not great. You know, we, we don't want to live paleolithic. But in terms of the exposures of environmental microbes, actually much better than what we've created. And so... In, and building our daily lives the way we have, we've inadvertently created a really unusual microbial milieu that we breathe in every moment of every day. You know, we're 90% of our hours are indoors pre-COVID. I don't even know what it would be globally now. We've created this microbial world that we just submit ourselves to all day. We submit our kids to all day. And it's really weird. And I think this, this kind of theater of scrubbing everything is making that world even less healthy and even more unusual. So to go back to the question of like the long-term impacts, if you're saying when you clean things with really, really harsh chemicals, it doesn't matter one minute later, one second later, there's still little beings back on that surface again. But you are saying they're not necessarily the same little beings. Like we're selecting for it sounds like we're we're changing who lives in our house but we're not we're not kicking people out we're just changing who lives there yeah we, we look around and like we, we say like who is weak and friendly and you say you're gone <laughs> and 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 who is super tough and potentially not friendly and that's who we keep and then they breed they breed yeah okay. they breed okay and you wake up to them and i mean a hospital is sort of the extreme case of this 
You know, hospitals do many, many things that, that favor microbes that are bad for us. And they're an unusual situation because sometimes they have to, yeah. especially in a surgical setting. But it's a constant battle in hospitals because you've done away with all the useful microbes and you're just dealing with these species that are really hard to kill. And there are better ways forward. But the, but the hospital approach is really challenging and not what we want. But I think it's almost more and more what we're trying to do in our houses. We're trying to make them like hospitals. Right. And it's, it's bad news. We see, uh, this isn't just a in-your-house kind of thing. We see this, um, you know, in subways, there are these, like, aerosolized spraying of, I'm not sure quite what it is, bleach, disinfectant, something. Um, we see it in hotels, uh, gyms. I mean, places that want to tell you it's okay to take the subway, right? I mean, that's why they're doing it. It's a, it, I think, in large part, it's to reassure you. What do you make of of that, that it's not just our homes, it's public spaces, too? Um, and also, what's coming out of those things? I, I really don't know exactly. Yeah, I, I think it's very varied and rarely well-tested. I mean, nobody's done that experiment because nobody imagined we would be doing, like, large-scale spraying of antimicrobials into subways. Or mm. I mean, even a couple of years ago, if I was thinking about, well, what would the worst case scenario be for killing off good microbes? I couldn't have imagined we would do that. Mm -hmm. So we really don't have a great sense of what that's doing. And most of the time, the tests that we have are you, you use an approach like that against one microbe in a lab environment and look what happens. But we don't do it in the way that it's now being practiced in society. It's the same way, like think about antiperspirants. When people were studying antiperspirants, what they studied was... How does this thing that you put on your armpit affect the glands in your armpit and the odors produced by microbes? But nobody said, well, what's the large-scale societal effect of changing the skin microbes of most people? And, and, so, and so we also don't know the, the effect in this context. But my sense is when you see it, in, in some ways it almost conveys to me the opposite. It's, it says that we would really, really like to convince you that this is safe, which makes me like worry. It's a biochemical gesture, which is, I mean, it's a crazy thing. And that biochemical gesture is part of a much bigger shift in society where every place we can, we're spraying biocides. And so it's not so different from the increasing use of pesticides. It's not so different from the increasing use of herbicides, of fungicides. And so we... We live in a world where we're making ourselves feel safe by spraying these things. But invariably, even if they're providing some benefit, it's very short term. And often there's a long term consequence that really haunts us. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub from GBH Radio and PRX. I'm talking with Rob Dunn. He's a professor of applied ecology at North Carolina State University. We're going to come back and talk more about this increasingly clean world that we live in what its effect is on kids, and what you can do to make sure that you are actually getting a diversity of protective microbes. If you want to find or you want to share this whole segment, we're online at innovationhub.org. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. Talk to you in a minute.
Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I've been talking with Rob Dunn. He's a professor of applied ecology about the incredible uptick in cleaning that we've seen over the past year and what the potential long-term impacts of that cleanliness might be. He's the author of several books, including Never Home Alone and, most recently, Delicious. And I want to shift our focus for just a minute here to kids. Um, Obviously, a lot of kids have been home from school. Some kids uh, have been home for close to a year at this point. Um, Or if you've got a kid doing hybrid schooling, they certainly are home a lot more than they ever were. Do you think that... um, kids are different in some ways than adults because adults have a more developed immune system? I think there are two parts to that question. One is, do you think about kids differently with regard to COVID? Mm -hmm. And I think there are lots of conversations about reasons you might with regard to the benefits of being around other kids socially and these sorts of things. And so there's that social layer of why you might think about kids differently. Then I think there's the COVID layer Does COVID do different things in kids than it does in adults? And I would say we're still sort of learning about that. But then there's the the good microbes layer. And I I would say that what we for sure know about kids is that in kids, all of the ways in which our immune systems work are developing. And so it's especially important for kids to be exposed to potentially beneficial microbes. You know, if, if you don't get exposed to the good gut microbes in the first few years of your life, it is much, much harder to get them later. Hmm. We don't know, but it looks like something similar happens to skin microbes. If you get unusual skin microbes early, it's probably much more difficult to acquire good skin microbes later. And for sure, with regard to how our immune system negotiates the world, a lot of the learning our immune system does about the world is very, it's, it's in very young kids. And so for all those reasons, I think it's more important for them to be exposed to soil microbes and leaf microbes and, you know, potential skin and gut microbes they might need and not for those all to be killed off all around them. And we can, we can imagine different ways of doing, doing that, but we're only going to do it if we're conscious of right. that they have these needs. So let me ask you a little bit about that issue of the future. I wonder how much you think this is changing us and how we look at the world. I mean, I I see tons of ads on TV for cleaners that will give you peace of mind against coronavirus. Um, I got a catalog just in the last couple of weeks um, that sold hand sanitizer stations that you could install around your house. Very sort of sleek looking I just wonder, you know, like once you've installed the hand sanitizer station, you know, in your garage or whatever, do you take it out when coronavirus becomes less of an issue? What's your sense of how this plays out? Well, if I look across different ecological systems, what humans seem to have done again and again is that when we're scared of something, we destroy it or kill it. And then when we realize we've gone too far, we have to try to rebuild the ecology around us piece by piece. And and so my guess is that the next years that we see those stations all over the place, that people continue to act out this this theater of hygiene, different from the actual most necessary practices of hygiene. But at the same time, we become more aware of the negative consequences of that theater. And so rather than, than... engaging in moderation, which as humans we're very, very bad at, 
that what we do is we buy products to restore the microbes that we've killed. And those products are already available. You can buy microbes that you spray around your house. Really? Yeah. Okay. And, and so I think we're moving toward that model, which just to note, I don't think is a very good model. Okay. Of, of breaking our daily ecosystem and restoring it piece by piece, imagining that we're smart enough to rebuild nature, which often we're not. So you don't buy personally spray bottles full of microbes to put in your house? You know, I, I imagine that there are scenarios where we, we so degrade the ecosystem around us in our homes that that's better than the other options. Hmm. But, but I, I hope I don't inhabit a place where that becomes necessary, because I guess it would mean that we've, we've gone pretty far in this theater. All right. So let me ask you, finally, let's say you are hearing this and you think, oh, my gosh, you know, I, I have been wiping everything down. I have been, you know, my child has been inside like 23 of the 24 hours every day. I'm concerned. I didn't realize there were health, potential health consequences downstream of not getting these different microorganisms. What should I do? So I've got a second. I'll tell a, a story, which is an anecdote that suggests maybe a, a model, which is that we sure we, we did a study a, a couple of years ago now with bakers from around the world where we had them all make the same sourdough starter. So if you make a sourdough starter, you mix flour and water and bacteria and fungi co colonize the flour and water and it rises and becomes acidic and you can use it to make bread. It's the most ancient way to make bread. And we wanted to know if the baker's hands were affecting which microbes were in there in, in the starter and then the flavor of the bread. Okay. And, and so that's what we were interested in, kind of a weird like, thing that scientists would think about. Uh, but it turns out that they do, so that you can have a, an effect of the baker on the flavor of her or his bread from their skin microbes. Okay. But what we hadn't expected is when we looked at the baker's hands, they were totally unusual. So all, all people's hands are covered in skin microbes. Even after you scrub your hands with soap and water, they're still there. It's your beneficial layer. It's like a, a magical cloak. Most of the time, there are no yeasts there and very few lactobacillus bacteria there, the things that are required in sourdough. On the bakers, uh, up to 70% of the microbes on their hands were lactobacillus of the bacteria, and they were covered with yeasts. And so what this told us is that the daily actions of the bakers had actually transformed their bodies. And so what this made me think as we would go about our lives is all of the daily actions we take, how we interact with the living world, affect our bodies and well-being. And so what are the actions that you want to take that are recorded on your kids in, in a way? And so I think there are simple things, you know, making fermented food, great one. No negatives. It's fun to do. It's delicious. And it has some health benefits. And those microbes can colonize you. This is we're taking yeast bread or kimchi or Yeah, kombucha, yogurt. sauerkraut, yogurt. Okay. Lots of sort of side benefits and, and maybe also helps your own microbes. Okay. And for sure, those microbes pour out of your kitchen through your house. Open your windows. If you can have a means to do it, it lets those microbes from outside in and even in hospital settings, it's been shown that that's helpful. And so if you open the window in a hospital room, a study in Oregon showed, there are fewer pathogens in the room after than if the, if the window was closed and you had the best cleaning system the hospital mm -hmm. had. And, and so really easy. I mean, if you're in a super polluted place, it's more difficult. Get outside when you can. I mean, given we've designed our houses to seal 
everything out. Uh, sometimes what it takes to get exposure is to play around in the soil, dig for something, garden. And I know it's not possible everywhere right now, but if you can, that's the kind of thing. And then just remember at the end of the day, like what, what did this day, what kind of life print did my actions leave on me? And what do I want that to look like? I think we don't want it to look like I tried to kill everything because that's also what it's conveying unto our bodies. Rob Dunn is a professor of applied ecology at North Carolina State University. Rob, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Kara. What, what a pleasure to be back. And we'll have more on our website about how scientists came to increasingly believe that COVID spreads through the air, not surfaces. That's at innovationhub.org. And we'll also have more for you there on the so-called hygiene hypothesis, the notion that creating a super clean world has led to a major uptick in autoimmune issues.